We believe the fact that he came is incredibly life-giving, that he showed up for us, he kept his promises that he made from long ago and showed up. We believe that the way he walked among us and lived among us is incredibly life-giving. We believe what he taught is life-giving. We believe the fact that he died on the cross for our sins is life-giving. We believe that he rose again on the third day and that that is life-giving. And it's a good thing because not all of life is life-giving. Sometimes life is pretty draining. Sometimes in life we think about the baggage that we carry. Baggage from our past. And it's pretty draining. Sometimes we think about the issues that we have in the present. And it's pretty draining. Sometimes we think about our fears of the future. And it's pretty draining. Sometimes, sometimes it's not our personal issues, whether they're our baggage or our issues or our future fears. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's our doubts, doubts that will ever be enough, doubts that will ever measure up. Our doubts can be pretty draining. Sometimes it's not our doubts or it's not our personal issues. It's, it's relationships. Now look, this is a weird time for relationships. We went through two years of uncertainty. And now, to me at least, it feels like it, after two years of uncertainty, now it's unbelievably busy. And look, not every relationship survived that. Some friendships didn't survive the last two years. A lot of working relationships didn't survive the last two years. Some family relationships didn't survive the last two years. That can be awfully draining as you mourn the loss of friendships. But what I want you to see, whether you're, whether you're facing the loss of friendships or whether you're living with doubts or whether you're thinking about your personal stuff, I want you to see that Christ is life-giving today, and I want to show you how following him is life-giving. So if you have your Bibles with me, or with you, and you want to open them with me, we'll be in John chapter 19. So if you want to open them with me, we'll be at the very end of John chapter 19. Before I jump into the text, uh, I want to show you a couple pictures to kind of give you some orientation. So in the year um, 30, 30 to 40 AD, this is what the Roman Empire was beginning to look like. Rome had, in, had conquered the entire Mediterranean rim, and so Rome is up there in the maroon arrow, and Jerusalem is up there in the yellow arrow. 
arrow. Um, Jerusalem is controlled by Rome, and so this is why Jesus dies on a Roman cross. He dies in Jerusalem. So here is an artist's rendition of what the city of Jerusalem looked like at the time of Jesus' death. And you can see the Garden of Gethsemane is over there, and Jesus was officially tried by the Romans at the governor's headquarters. We think this is Herod's old palace. And then um, at the time when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed at the temple is when Jesus was crucified. John wants us to see the correlation between the Passover lambs being sacrificed and Jesus' death. Then they have the garden gate where Jesus carries his cross probably to the garden gate. Then they meet Simon and Jesus has collapsed from exhaustion and then Simon carries his cross to Golgotha. We think Golgotha is over there. Let me zoom in a little bit. So there's the garden gate. He would have, um, Simon would have carried the cross from the garden gate to Golgotha, probably. A mound of unquarried stones because it wasn't very high quality. There is a garden right there. You can see today, we can study that soil and see that that would have been good, um, a good place to have a garden outside the garden gate. And um, perhaps this was where the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was. This is what the tomb would have looked like. There is the stone door. Uh, rich people uh, could afford having a round stone. You can imagine a round stone is a little bit harder to come by than just a regular old big stone. Uh, but they wanted to keep out uh, animals and also grave robbers. So they'd roll the stone back and forth. Then there'd be steps down into the tomb. We're going to look into the tomb today. And bodies were laid there while they were wrapped up. They would decompose for about a year. And then they'd be put in ossuary boxes and stored with their ancestors. So that's, that's kind of what we looked like. And we'll, we'll see today linen cloths and the face cloth. So if you can kind of picture that as we read, maybe that will help. So after these things, after Jesus has died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Hey, hey, we'll come back to that. Joseph of Arimathea, was he a disciple? Yes. Was he a disciple out loud? No. Quietly for fear of the Jews. What was he afraid of? I don't know. Probably the same stuff you're afraid of. And more so. Maybe he's afraid of losing everything. Maybe he's afraid of who he's going to lose. What he's going to lose. Ask Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. This is a big ask. He, you know, Jesus was convicted of being an insurrectionist, being the Jewish king, when Roman was in charge. It's kind of a dangerous thing to ask for. I want the body of the resurrection, or the insurrectionist. That's a, that's a scary thing. But he's come out of hiding. Something about the way Jesus dies convinces him it's time to come out of hiding. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, probably because Pilate knew he was innocent. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, earlier, had come to Jesus by night. Hey, do you know where John 3.16, the, the song the kids sang earlier, do you, know, do you know what chapter that's in? I guess I gave it away. John chapter 3. <laughs> Shouldn't make stuff up as I go. It never goes well. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. And John 
3.16 is kind of when Jesus is explaining what he's come to do to Nicodemus. And it looks like Nicodemus leaves kind of wondering, kind of not sure. Well, now he's sure. Nicodemus also, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot. That is a whole lot. That is expensive. It looks to me like he's crossed the line of faith at this time. Something about the way Jesus died gave Joseph of Arimathea courage to come out of hiding. Something about the way Jesus died gave Nicodemus the courage to cross the line of faith. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was, ready for this? There was a garden. Why does John want us to know there's a garden? I really believe this garden is the answer to the first garden in the Bible. Do you remember the first garden in the Bible where God has created a good heavens and a good earth and gave us one rule, don't eat, don't take that one fruit, don't have the forbidden fruit. And what was the one thing we had to have? The one thing we had to have was the one thing we couldn't have. And so we went and took it, and like God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And we didn't believe it, and so we ate, and something between us and God died. One first century scholar put it like this. He said, the wages of sin is death. Happened in the first garden. But look, you already know that the wages of sin is death. You already know that because when you find out that a friend is lying about you, something between you and your friend dies. When you find out that someone you're working with has been stealing from you, something between you and them dies. When you find out that a family member has been breaking a confidence, or cheating, something between you and them dies. The wages of sin was death then and is still death today. The wages of sin is death. That We learned that in the first garden, and this is God's answer to the problem generated in the first garden. Now in Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, which is Friday, getting ready for Passover Saturday, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, so you have Friday, which is a day of preparation, Saturday, which is the Jewish Passover, and then this would be Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, on the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together. And the author of the book wants you to know it was a race. I know that because of what comes next. And both of them were running together. And by the way, the author of the book says, I won. And he says it twice. That it would be recorded for all of history. I won. And the other disciple, I ran Peter. That's one. And reached the tomb first. That's twice. I won. I beat him. But he's also honest. He's not only going to brag. Because you'll see what happens next. And stooping in. Remember he stoops. Remember that picture of the tomb? He kind of stoops in and looks. It's really dark in there because it's still kind of dark outside. He saw the linen claws lying there, but he did not go in because he's, he's kind of creepy, right? Going to a tomb? I don't want to do that. Then Simon Peter came, following him. Simon Peter may be slow, but he is brave. <laughs> and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen claws lying there, and the face cloths which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Sounds an awful lot like an eyewitness account. He goes in, he sees, he sees what, Jesus, what had been wrapped around Jesus' body just laying there, just discarded like, like whoever had him no longer needed him. He folded up his face cloths and set it there, wonder what they're going to think of that. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, I did win, by the way, also went in. And he saw and believed. That's the thing that John wants you to do. Most of all, that's the thing that John wants for you. That you would believe. That's what I want for you. That you would believe. This is, this is why the book is written. If if, I don't know if you have your Bibles open or not, but in chapter 20, verse 31, we get the point of the book. But these are written. Everything in John, the Gospel of John, is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. That's what we're saying. This is awfully life-giving stuff. You may have life in his name. So he sees and believes. Now, what did he believe? And what did he not know? For, as yet, they did not understand the scripture. Like, he, he didn't know. He, he didn't know what to believe. But now he's learning what to believe because now all of scripture is coming together. For, as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He must rise from the dead. I'm probably going to forget to say this later, so I'm just going to say this now. If you look back at what crucifixions meant, John doesn't spend a lot of time on that because he assumes his audience knows, because everyone in the first century knew. 
was heinous. Heinous. Jesus was tortured to death. And God worked all that together for good. That's awfully life-giving to know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. To make us more like Jesus. And look, God didn't leave himself out. He came in the person of Jesus and suffered right alongside us. Suffering for us. So whatever you're going through, whatever you've been through the last two years, I know, I know he's working it together for good. I know it. Here's what we're to believe from this, though. Number one, that Jesus died for our sins. So we didn't read the part about Jesus dying for our sins. We're picking it up after he's dead. But he died for our sins. And here's, here's why this is, here's what this means. This means that he bore the sin sickness that we helped create. Like friendships get sick with sin when we lie to each other or sin against each other, he bore our sin sickness on the cross. Illness, disease is a picture of sin in the Bible. What this means is that he took the punishment that we deserve. So when we, I mean, you already know that sin deserves punishment. So when someone steals something from you, you're like, they should be punished. They should not get away with this when someone steals something big and important from you. Well, Jesus, I mean, you're right, it should be punished. But we've, we've, we've participated in sin that should be punished too. And Jesus took the punishment for our sins. When someone sins against you, you think, they owed me better than that. They owed me honesty. They owed me respect. They owed me love. They owed me accountability. They owed me more than this. The good news is that Jesus died for our sins. This is awfully life-giving to know that our relationship with God is not diseased if we've come to him and asked for the forgiveness of our sins. It's awfully life-giving to know that God is not still waiting to punish us, looking for an opportunity to punish us. If we've come to him and asked for the forgiveness of our sins, it's life-giving to know that all is forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. It's life-giving to know that God isn't up there looking at us saying, well, you'll probably go to heaven someday, but you sure don't deserve it because of all the things you've done. But God forgave all of that and welcomes us into a relationship with him. Jesus died for our sins, and this is life-giving. This is what John writes, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing has, have life in his name. 
Jesus died for our sins. That's the first life-giving truth that we see in this text. The second is that Jesus rose again on the third day, that he did rise from the dead. So you might have doubts, and you're going, I, I don't know, man. I don't know, what if, what if God changes his mind about me? What if, what if God is secretly holding a grudge about some of the stuff I've said or some of the stuff I've done? What if, what if God is scrolling through my life like an old social media account trying to figure out whether or not I measure up? Trying to figure out whether or not I'm good enough. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor, scholar, and he tells a story about some naughty little boys who are playing baseball in the house. And, of course, it's fictional. It's, uh, I'm trying to, trying to illustrate a point. It's the best I can do. It may not be a great point, but I mean, it's, I mean it, the truth is great. The story, you can decide if, if you like it or not. I'm doing the best I can. So these naughty little boys are playing hardball in the house. And one time, the, you know, one of the brothers winds up, you know, and, and pitches it. And one of the other brothers hits it and breaks a window. You know, does something really bad. And the dad says, you know what, this is not okay. This has to be punished. It has to be punished. It can't go on anymore. I mean, it ha- we've got to call you to account. We've got to punish you for this. But the older brother, who wasn't there, steps in and says, Dad, I'll take their punishment. The dad says, okay, I love those naughty little boys, and I didn't want to punish them. I love you too, but because you volunteered, I'll punish you in their place. So he gives them a spanking, and then he sends them to the basement. This happens on a Friday afternoon, and he's in the basement, grounded, late Friday afternoon, all Friday night, all day Saturday. And then Sunday morning, well, before I tell you about Sunday morning, all this time that the younger brothers are wondering, is this going to work? Is this going to be enough? Are we going to get away? I mean, is this okay? Sunday morning, the dad calls the son up from the basement, rolls the door away to the basement, calls him up from the basement, says, all is forgiven. That's enough. Go play. And see, this is the thing. Jesus wrote a check on Friday that cleared on Sunday morning. He wrote a check and said, it is finished on Friday. He said, all your sins are paid for. I'm taking them all on to myself. I'm bearing them all in your place. He dies. He is buried. And then he clears. And we all know it worked because he was raised again on Sunday morning. So look, you're going, I don't know. You know, I just doubt that it's that good. I I just doubt. I I think he's probably going to change his mind. The check cleared. 
he's not going to change his mind. You might be thinking, I don't know, you know, like maybe he's still secretly mad and still secretly holding a grudge because some of the stuff I did is really, really, really bad and nobody else knows. And I don't know if he, I don't know. The check cleared. It is finished. Go free. You might be like, I don't know, I just have this picture of God scrolling through my life like an old social media account looking for a way to cancel me. Take you back to the cross and say, listen to Jesus. He said, it is finished. And you know what? On Sunday morning, the check cleared. It is finished. You are forgiven. It is that good. It is that life-giving. You don't have to worry about whether or not you measure up because he measures up. And you are in him. You don't have to worry about whether or not that's forgiven or that thing, that really big thing is forgiven. It's all forgiven because he knows all of it. He sees all of it. He died for all of it. He took your place. And it worked. life-giving to believe that his sacrifice was enough. It's life-giving to believe that he died for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, and that, and that all doing it, he was keeping promises made earlier in Scripture. All of this was to fulfill scripture. That's why we have the must up there, that he must rise from the dead. It all went according to his plan. As bad as everything was, it all went according to his plan. And it all was to fulfill scripture. If you think of, think of the scriptures like a glass, and think of the crucifixion as, um, and resurrection as God pouring Jesus out to fill up this glass of scripture. So you think of, the first garden as being part of the glass. The problem that was created in the first garden is a problem that was solved in this garden. If you think of the Exodus and you think of the people enslaved in Egypt and you think of God sending Moses and saying, go in there and rescue my son, bring out my people, well, that is part of the glass that is fulfilled in Jesus' death and his burial, and resurrection. It's all coming true. You see all the threads of the story coming together as, oh, that deliverance led to this deliverance from sin and death. This is the greater exodus. If you think of the time of the judges, when the people fall into sin patterns again and again and again, they go into slavery again and again and again. You see, this that's part of the glass that is being filled up in Jesus' rescue and deliverance of his people in his death and resurrection. As you think of the exile, when the people have to go into Babylon, from whence Abraham came, they go back into exile so that, like Jesus went into the grave, so that they can come back home. This is Jesus being dying and rising again so that God can one day bring us all home. It's all coming true. He is the creator reclaiming 
creation. He is the judge of all the earth, finally doing what is right. He is the father, raising up his son. And because he raises his biological son, he will also raise his adopted sons and daughters, which is you and me. So what should we do? Well, we should follow him. We should follow him. We should follow him across the line of faith. And I know, I know you might be going, dude, I've got baggage. You know, and I don't know if I can follow him across the line of faith with my baggage. I don't know about that. I've got issues. I mean, I, I don't know, like, I've got, I've got issues. I've got fears. And I'm just telling you, the most life-giving thing you can do is bring your baggage, bring your issues. Don't try to pretend they're not there. Bring them. Gather them all up. Bring your baggage. Bring your issues. Cross that line of faith and set that stuff at the cross and say, Jesus, you got to deal with this. It's all yours. And I'm all yours. Save me. You're my Lord and Savior. He promises you life. This is, this is what Nicodemus decided it was time to do, to cross the line of faith. Maybe John 3.16 was ringing in his ears. For God so loved the world. Maybe he really does. Something about him seeing Jesus die helped it click. Don't perish. This is a matter of life and death. Cross the line of faith. Bring him your baggage. Bring him your issues. Bring him your fears. Bring all of your sins. Set them at the cross. Follow Jesus across the line of faith. Follow Jesus out of hiding. Just like Joseph of Arimathea follows Jesus out of hiding. I mean, you have to wonder... It says in the text here, it says in verse 38 that Joseph of Marathia, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, you know, maybe it was a secret because he had his doubts about Jesus. Maybe it was a secret because he just, he was just so afraid. And his doubts were, and his fears were bigger than his faith. But something about the way Jesus dies gives him courage that is greater than all his doubts and all his fears. And I'm just telling you, it is life-giving. If you're a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because you're afraid of them, or it, or what you'll lose, I'm just telling you, it's life-giving to not live a double life. Living a double life is awfully costly work. It's life-giving to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus and I want everybody to know. And live a single life rather than a double life. Follow Jesus out of hiding because, because your courage and the way you see Jesus and follow Jesus can be greater than all your doubts and fears. And follow Jesus 
here's, here's the thing. Like, if you're, if you're wondering about crossing the line, one of the things you should know before you cross the line is that following Jesus, part of what that means is following his example. And, you know, we talked earlier about when people lie about us, something between us and them dies. When people steal from us, something between us and them dies. When people break a confidence with us, something between us and them dies. We talked about that and we said that also more than that it happens between us and God when we participate in those sins. Think of what Jesus did. Remember we talked about that. Jesus, Jesus died on the cross so that he could bear our sin sickness, so that he could pay our debts, so that he could take our punishment, so that we could be forgiven. Following Jesus' example a lot of times means the bloody work of forgiveness. It means that when that friendship is sick with sin, I don't know if the friendship will survive. But I know, I know as a follower of Jesus, you're called to forgive the bloody work of forgiveness. I don't know if your relationship with your coworkers will survive. But I know you're called to forgive. Look at what Jesus did to forgive. I don't know if you'll have a relationship with the family members. But I know you're called to forgive. And I know that forgiveness is life-giving. Holding a grudge is not life-giving. Nursing bitterness is not life-giving. Hoping that you can take revenge one day is not life-giving. Forgiveness is life-giving because following Jesus is life-giving. Here's my goal for this week. This is, this is what I want you to know this week. Jesus is life-giving. He is life-giving. His death is life-giving. His resurrection is life-giving. The way he keeps promises, despite everything, is life-giving. So follow him into new life. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would pull us towards yourself today. Lord, that you'd help us cross the line of faith. That you'd help us Reckon with our doubts and bring them to you. That you'd help, help us have confidence that you are good, that you are in charge, that you are holding all of it together for good. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.